Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode, we are asking whether Russian actions in Ukraine can be qualified as genocide. Our guest is Christopher Atwood, a researcher at the Harriman Institute of Columbia University, a contributor and advisor on a recent report on Russia's breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine, recently published by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of UkraineWorld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We're using a big part of your donations to help Ukrainian resistance and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Christopher, hello. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are one of the contributors and advisors to a report which is called An Independent Legal Analysis of the Russian Federation's Breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the Duty to Prevent. This report has been prepared in May 2022 by New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Uh, in the description to our listeners, I'm saying that in the description you will find the link to this report. But with Christopher, we decided to talk a little bit uh, what this report is about and why it is important. So why do you think it's it's important right now, right now to talk about the issues that you are discussing in this report? Oh, man. Um, I think that it's important. Uh, well, I should sort of ground uh, sort of where our report like falls in terms of like its historical significance. So as far as I'm aware, and as far as everybody who's worked on the report is aware, um, and these are like experts who would know this thing, um, there's practically no precedent for a report of this uh, detail and uh, with these kinds of conclusions being compiled and published this early during a uh, war of this magnitude. So it's important to get it out there because from the beginning of the war, and I'm sure that, you know, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you, but I, I, I can share it with your audience, that, um, you know, a lot of Ukrainians immediately saw the designation or the, the term denazification and understood that fundamentally that probably meant that there was uh, genocidal intent behind the invasion. And so that conversation started almost immediately. There was, uh, I think, uh, one of the international, uh, 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 one international prosecutor started uh, looking into it really quickly. And then obviously, after we saw, um, we saw the uh, uh, aftermath of the occupation of Bucha, um, the conversation really became pretty toxic. And it was particularly easy for people uh, to hide behind the idea that, well, genocide is technically a legal term. So we should uh, understand that only from a legal standpoint. And so I think it's particularly important to get a legal analysis uh, out there relatively early um, so that there is that legal basis to make uh, the argument. Right. And uh 
in this report, you're also discussing very much the, 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 the Russian conditions, the conditions that are present in Russian media, in Russian public discourse. And this is very important, as far as I understand, to prove that there is a genocide. Uh, so you need to prove that there is a certain intent or certain incitement to genocide. In your opinion, how, how we can judge the Russian discourse in the recent decades, whether there were real, these incitement to genocide. Right. Yeah. So this is a, this is a a great point, right? The, the thing that separates genocide from um, other atrocity crimes is finding the intent. Um, And I do want to step back just very briefly and, and, and point out that um, a lot of people seem to be under the impression that uh, genocidal intent needs to be explicit uh, it does not need to be explicit, and courts over the decades have uh, said this outright that that you can't, you don't, you don't even um, like one court in the early two thousands that was uh, uh, examining atrocities during um, the Yugoslav wars. One court determined that you don't actually technically even need a genocidal plan to have committed ge- or to commit genocide. Um, the intent just needs to appear at some point. Um, and so, yeah, like what you end up seeing in this Russian rhetoric is uh, this almost absurd tension where on one hand you have uh, the Russian media saying constantly and over and over that Ukraine does not exist. It's a uh, uh, fictitious historical construct that was created uh, in the early 1900s. Um that it was a mistake by the Soviet Union. I think Putin in in his essay says that uh, his essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Um, in that essay, he says something along the lines of uh, uh, Ukraine was uh, uh, invented by the Bolsheviks. So you have this narrative, which already uh, starts to lay the groundwork to uh, genocidal intent. And then you have a second narrative that emerges that basically says uh, any Ukrainian who uh, uh, buys into this, in their view, like what they call a false narrative of the existence of Ukrainians, that any Ukrainian who views themselves as a distinct Ukrainian, then necessarily they must be a Nazi, they must be far right, and uh, as a practice, right, denazification means liquidating Nazis, so as a practice, they need to be removed uh, from Ukrainian society. Uh, And so that's where you sort of start to see the genocidal intent. And when you start seeing how that lines up with what victims of atrocities uh, in Ukraine right now are reporting, when you see uh, what, you know, intercepted phone calls uh, between Russian soldiers and their families, uh, when you see those transcripts, it it starts to become pretty clear uh, that this that this that these media narratives are influencing uh how these soldiers are behaving so do you understand correctly that by saying that ukrainians are nazis and there was also a narrative that uh uh some or maybe all of the ukrainians more or less uh, support this Ukrainian ideology, and therefore they are passive Nazis. There was also this this concept emerging in Russian media. By saying this, by dehumanizing Ukrainians, it opened the way for mass killings, because basically 
it removed any moral obligation of the Russian soldiers with regard to Ukrainian population that they were occupying. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And it's also important here to note that, um, you know, it's not as if these Russian state media ideas are being shared in a free media environment, right? Like, uh, first, we should note that Russian soldiers have one hour of TV time every day, and that TV time is Russian state news. Um, Russian soldiers are uh, obliged to read Putin's essay on the unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Um, And then obviously, uh, there is massive crackdown on, uh, there's a massive crackdown on independent media. Independent media was already almost non-existent in the Russian media space before the invasion. Um, and now it is completely non-existent. So it just, it, it, it creates this environment where soldiers are hearing these ideas constantly. And, uh, it's hard to get around the idea that, uh, you know, when, when a soldier or for example, in our report, we cite a an incident where a Ukrainian man is taken away by Russian soldiers because he has a tattoo of the Ukrainian coat of arms, right? When when the when the idea of having a tattoo of the Ukrainian coat of arms, uh, uh, like when when that is interpreted as like a, a evidence that you are a Nazi and must be eliminated, well, then clearly we've crossed some kind of threshold. So, yeah, I think that uh, this is sort of the, the the danger in that rhetoric. And to your point, actually, it's also important to note that while there were sort of rumblings that all of Ukrainians were Nazis, the initial rhetoric at the uh, uh, start of the war was that, no, 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 it's just the government and military. So we just need to change the government. Uh, demilitarize Ukraine, and inherently Ukraine will be denazified. Um, and then you start seeing these uh, uh, this 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 talking point from Russian state media people. So, for example, uh, the uh, 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 the deputy chair of the State Duma, Pyotr Tolstoy, um, and then uh, the head of RT uh, and like the editor in chief of Russia Sonia, um, Margarita Simonyan. Uh, they both start saying, I think somewhere in the middle of uh, March, that actually we didn't realize how many Ukrainians were Nazis. This is uh, going to be a massive undertaking. At one point, Pyotr Tolstoy writes on Telegram, I think, I believe he says this on a national TV show as well. He says that we've lost an entire generation of Ukrainians. So what what is a russian soldier supposed to how, how is a russian soldier supposed to interpret that statement right like when a russian soldier is fighting in ukraine and he's hearing from state media that uh, we've lost an entire generation of ukrainians he arrives in some ukrainian town and locals don't want him there uh shout him down uh and and tell him that he's the fascist well then like everything that he's been told for several years, and this rhetoric has intensified over the recent months, tells him that that person's a Nazi. And if my job is to denazify Ukraine, then I need to do something with that person. Right. And uh, it's it's also important, I think, to stress that uh, how Russian propaganda in the, in, the, in the lay tickets were making an equation mark between nationalism and Nazism, 
patriotism and Nazism, but also the very fact of having a Ukrainian identity, as you mentioned, this the coat of arms and cherishing the coat of arms or Ukrainian national flag also identifies with, with, with the Nazism. So Russians are taking a maybe a very good idea to fight uh, against Nazism and, and uh, decent idea, but turn it into into a Nazism itself, into the instrument to kill people. And one of your one of your points of your report is also the point which is called accusation in a mirror, when you are saying that look, Russians are were depicting Ukrainians as, as committing genocide, and we've heard this rhetoric by Putin before the 24th of uh, February. And this also kind of removes this moral barrier, right? If, you, if you're attacking a country which is committing gen- genocide, you kind of uh, giving a permission uh, to your soldiers to commit a genocide. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is something that, um, and I think we note in the report, this is something that you see uh, in a lot of atrocities. Uh, you have the perpetrator, the perpetrator initially uh, uh, needs to find a reason to attack uh, uh, the targeted group. And one of the easiest ways to find that reason is to uh, characterize them as an existential threat to uh, uh, the perpetrating group. And so, you know, and I I do want to point, like, I I do want to expand this a little bit and um, note that, you know, this idea of Ukrainians being Nazis or uh, people who identify as Ukrainian or who embrace the Ukrainian identity, uh, that those people must inherently be uh, far right Nazis or fascists. Right. That idea you know, did not start in February. It did not start in 2014. That idea has been uh, a mainstay of Russian propaganda, you know, since really before World War II. So it's not it's it's not hard for the Kremlin to build a narrative that Ukrainians are carrying out genocide or to accuse Ukrainians of genocide when you know the 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 Kremlin uh both in the Soviet period and in the uh post-Soviet period, you know, has for decades been building this narrative that if you identify as Ukrainian then, well, that means that you glorify uh, uh, Ukrainian nationalist figures from World War II, which means that you glorify Nazi collaboration, which means you glorify Nazis, which makes you a Nazi, which means you're capable of genocide. And it's just, yeah, it, 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 it all ties together and it's all a, you know, it's, it's a historical project ultimately, right? Like I was listening to an episode of yours from, uh, of this podcast from a couple of weeks ago, um, where you had talked about Russian, uh, imperialism, right? And this, you know, it kind of goes back to that idea that, uh, without the Ukrainian, uh, uh, nation as part of a larger Russian nation, well, then you have a huge hole in your national Russian or Russian national myth, and you need to fill it with something. And it's easier just to, uh, reject the concept of Ukrainians um, and to find different ways to just assure Russians that no, 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 
the Ukrainians who think they're Ukrainians, there's just something wrong with them. They're really Russians who have just been corrupted by the West or by Western ideas. And it's just an attempt to uh, destroy Russia. Why do you think Russians are perceiving Ukraine as an existential threat? So they they really put, okay, for Ukrainians, it is, it is obvious we are we are describing Russia as an existential threat because we understand that Russia can destroy Ukraine, can destroy its statehood, uh, and uh, and Ukrainians need to defend. By, but uh, for Russians to depict Ukrainians as an existential threat, which is which is kind of weird because Ukraine has never developed any plans to conquer Russia, to deny Russia's existence uh, or whatever else. Why do you think it is so? That 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 is that is a that is a great question, and that is you know that that, that is obviously one of the questions that uh, academics are uh, trying to wrestle with uh, right now. And I think I I really think again this can only obviously be my personal opinion, and obviously we don't address it in the report. But um, I think I, I really do think it ultimately comes down to building this. Uh, Russian historical narrative and trying to find uh, uh, a Russian identity. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the name of the book, but uh, Sergei Plochi has a really, really brilliant book about Russian nationalism. and Lost Kingdom. Yes, Lost, Lost Kingdom. Kingdom. Yeah. And he explores this idea uh, in the end of the book that after the end of the Soviet Union, Russians really had to try to find what their identity really was. And I think that it's really hard uh, for the Russian state, um, especially a Russian state that's trying to keep together the pieces of uh, ultimately an old empire, right? Trying to keep everyone together under one roof is really difficult without some kind of unifying myth. And, you know, during my research for this report, obviously, I don't put everything that I see in the report. And, you know, there's there's an example where Margarita Simonyan at some point on Russian state TV starts talking about how Chechens uh, are now part of the larger Russian nation. Like and it's just this. And the the idea is because they're helping Russia with this like uh, uh, like civilizational war against the West. And. It's just it, it, it really is fascinating to see um, to, to see the, the, the struggle of trying to build this narrative. There's there's another book that I absolutely uh, recommend and absolutely love by uh, Serhii Yakelchik. Um, he's a uh, uh, he's a scholar professor in Canada. He wrote a book called Stalin's Empire of Memory, and that book sort of goes over the historical narratives that the Soviet Union's that the Soviet Union had to try to build in order to maintain the myth of like Russian and Ukrainian historical unity and there's just all kinds of absurd moments in the book where they're trying to make everything in Ukrainian history a march towards communism but at the same time make everything in Ukrainian history a march towards unity with the Russian people and those two ideas do not line up. It's not possible to make them line up. So you end up with absolutely absurd conversations wondering like, well, how do we, how do we, uh, uh, how do we bring uh, Bogdan Malnitsky into the historical 
uh, Ukrainian narrative when it sort of goes against the idea of a march towards communism. And it's just this. It, I, I think I think that ultimately, yeah, it comes down to um, there is just a struggle to define a uh, national narrative in Russian that in Russia that will uh, justify maintaining and uh, preserving what's left of this empire. Right. When you mention Margarita Simonyan, who is Armenian, uh, uh, calling Chechens kind of a heroes of Russia and uh, uh, presenting them, uh, them the present them Chechen Muslims as coming to Ukraine and Muslims and coming to Ukraine and to maintain the orthodox Slavic unity, this, of course, it sounds very, very absurd. And this, I think, shows some of the holes of the Russian identity indeed. And um, the this feeling that if if they do, do not destroy Ukrainian identity, uh, that th- they will lose the only chance for them to keep the Russian identity alive, maybe, maybe in this way. Let's talk about let's talk about reality. So you also talk about this in in uh, in your report because one thing is just intention, uh, the propaganda. This is very important. Uh, but what? How does it transfer? How how does it translate into reality? What are the actions of Russian military, uh, Russian soldiers in Ukraine that can confirm that it is really committing a genocide and trying to destroy? uh in full in full or in part ukrainian nation right so um yeah so sort of as as i as i alluded to earlier right like you don't actually need to publish or create a formal genocidal policy or plan but it can be inferred and the way you can infer it is through um like is through systemic atrocities that you see and among those atrocities that we see uh, in taking place in Ukraine right now are, you know, attacking shelters, attacking evacuation routes, uh, humanitarian corridors, um, you know, indiscriminate bombardment of residential areas. Uh, you know, you see these uh, uh, illegal adoptions. Um, you see uh, the, the the active destruction of uh, Ukrainian culture and and identity in occupied areas, um, forced deportations, right? All of these things, um, you know, each each thing individually. Um, oh, sorry, I, I forgot one, one, one of one of the major ones that we bring up in the report, which is uh, sexual violence, um, which also points towards a genocidal plan. And um, when each of these atrocities individually, uh, each of these crimes individually does not necessarily point to genocide, especially without some kind of plan. But when you look at the larger picture, when you look at what's actually happening on the ground, uh, how Russia is waging this war, how Russia is justifying this war, and how Russia is speaking about the targeted group, then it's really, really, really hard to deny that there is a uh, if 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 genocide is not currently taking place as defined by the genocide convention if that is the case then it is on the precipice of taking place based on the actions and based on uh the words and 
I, I do. And that, that is that is the uh, like conclusion that the report reaches is that there's a serious risk of genocide. And we also conclude that uh, that Russia is guilty of genocidal um, um, or sorry, of incitement to genocide. Right. And incitement to genocide by itself uh, is not genocide because you can you know, you can attempt to get somebody to kill somebody else. But if they don't do it, well, then you're only guilty of trying to incite them. Um, but it's, I mean, personally, right, as, as somebody who worked on the report and uh, a number of, of, of people who worked on this report have publicly said that they believe that there is a genocide taking place. Personally, I, th- I think it's really difficult to, to deny that the, this pattern of atrocities combined with this rhetoric, uh, uh, can point to anything other than genocide. When I uh, travel uh, across the Ukrainian villages, which were occupied by the Russians, when I see, for example, this pattern, uh, one of the patterns is a smashed car, a car smashed by the Russian tank. Or when I see the patterns of civilian cars, which were indiscriminately sh- uh, shot or shelled by, by the Russians, uh, just civilian cars uh, in which people were trying to escape uh, the uh, the town or the village. I'm asking a question uh, how it, how it could have happened. And one of the answers that I have is that Basically, the Russian soldiers did not have any instruction as to how to differentiate between civilians and, and soldiers. They were considering any person, any 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 person living in Ukraine as potential danger, and they did not really think how to avoid these mass killings. And that brings me to a to a conclusion also uh, that. Uh, Russians do not cherish even their own lives, their, the life of the, the, their own uh, citizens. And therefore, we see so many examples when, uh, when they send so many people to death, when they don't take, uh, take their bo- the bodies of the, the, the killed people from the, from the ground. So do you think it's, its roots are not only in the hatred of Ukrainians, let's say, but also in the kind of a very low value of life in, in Russian society or in Russian ideology? Um, I, I definitely believe that uh, the, the the Kremlin does not care much for human life, and you know we we've seen, uh, I believe like like Russian opposition journalists have died in Ukraine, um, or or at least been 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 injured in shelling, um, but yeah, so so you know it, it's 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 I don't think it's a sec- it's a secret that that Russia that especially the Kremlin right now. Uh, has absolutely no no care in the world for human life. Um, so many times when we were working on this report, because we're working with uh, different experts, right? And so my role on the team is I am a regional specialist. So I know uh, Ukraine, Russia, Eastern Europe in general, and how all of those uh, dynamics work, how, how the Russian-Ukrainian relationship has worked historically. And, but obviously it's a team that needs different people from different, you know, walks of life. And, uh, a lot of people, there was this comment a lot that when reviewing the atrocities that we were seeing throughout Ukraine, a lot of people sort of pointed to, uh, Syria and Chechnya that, that this was, you know, something would happen. We would share some kind of event and somebody would say, Wow, that's exactly what they did in Syria, and I'm talking about like a specific, like individual military 
strategy or technique or, you know, bombing a civilian area, for example, or the way that they bombed a civilian area or the way that they entered a civilian area. And somebody would say, oh, wow, that really looks like this thing that happened in Syria. So I do think that there's just a pattern of the Russian, uh, uh, yeah, like the, the Russian leadership for certain uh, does not care whatsoever about civilian life, about uh, Russian life. Um, and I do think that, you know, it's, 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 it's really hard to comprehend. It's really hard to wrap your mind around because, you know, I, I grew up, I, I, I grew up in Texas. I, I was a, um, you know, I was just a regular kid in Texas when growing up. And so, you know, I, I, you know, watched or saw history of World War II and it was presented to me by, as this like, you know, unique evil of this regime that just hated everybody or hated a certain group of people, hated certain groups of people and uh, did not care one way or the other how they perished or where they perished or anything about anybody. It was just this ide ideological push to uh, win. And I think that's what we're seeing um, with this invasion and with this, uh, uh, you know, regime in Russia that, yeah, it's 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 just this horrific thing. And I, I don't I I personally the big question I've been having is like, can we really not come together to stop this? Like, is this like is this like are we really having the conversations that we're having about uh, uh about like you know the I'm sure you saw there was the, there was a poll uh, that came out a couple of uh, of days ago that uh, only 22 percent of Europeans uh, believe that uh, the war should be fought until Ukraine recovers all of its uh, territories and I think 33 percent somewhere around there believed that um, believed that they're like that they they would be they would they think that it would be acceptable to end the war with a peace uh, with Russia occupying some parts of Ukrainian territory. And I, it just feels so absurd to me because when you look at every, all the research that went into this report, I don't understand why anyone is under the, like, is under the idea that Putin would stop at a, like, at just occupying some parts of Ukraine. So it's, 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 sorry, it's, it's, it's a, it's a long answer to a rather philosophical question. Yeah, unfortunately, we keep saying, the Ukrainians are keep saying that Putin will not stop, that the, the nature of this empire is a dynamic expansion. And uh, unfortunately, we still feel this uh, kind of uh, misunderstanding or lack of understanding in other parts of the world. Let me ask you, uh, when you look back in history, uh, because Ukrainians... Uh, were fighting, for example, and are still fighting to uh, be to recognize to um, Holodomor, the great famine of the 30s, as genocide. We see basically the repetition of the old schemas, uh, uh, old schemes. Uh, and uh, do you think that the more we we look into this war, the the more we see the older patterns coming back, and therefore the more we see probably the real genocidal nature of other atrocities that Russians or Soviets have been committing against Ukrainians, but also against other nations? That is such a brilliant question that I have been considering for a while now. And actually, uh, since 
since working on the report, I was actually one of the pieces I've been meaning to write and that I will sit down and write at some point in the near future is I want to write something uh, and basically say, I think I'll title it, uh, uh, Russia is trying to uh, execute another Ukrainian renaissance. Uh, and that, of course, is a reference to the executed renaissance uh, of the 1920s and 30s in Ukraine, where the Soviet government uh, you know, said, hey, we want to develop Ukrainian culture. We want to promote Ukrainian culture. We want to promote Ukraineness. And this is the this is the policy that contemporary Russians point to when they say that the Ukrainian uh, identity is completely fictitious and was created by the Bolsheviks. Um, and when you look at what happened there, right, like uh, looking at our report and Again, I'm not I'm I'm not a lawyer, right? Like I, my role in this was being a regional specialist, and so, but looking at the report, looking at how we termed everything, how is the how is that not a genocide of Ukrainians in part, right? Like the the whole purpose of destroying all of the intellectual figures uh, from the 1920s and 30s was to uh, uh, you know stop this like radical. Uh, uh, idea that Ukrainians were completely uh, distinct from Russians. The Bolsheviks weren't ready to go towards Ukrainians were completely distinct from Russians. They just wanted to like support the idea of Ukrainians in principle. And you know how, how is how is how is that not like at, at least bordering on on genocide? So yeah, no, I, I think that I think that looking at what what's happening now and how open it is, right, like. Just because the uh, executed renaissance was carried out, or sorry, that the execution of that Ukrainian renaissance was carried out uh, by secret police, just because it was, you know, local authorities doing these things, you know, it doesn't make it any less um, targeted than what we're seeing right now. So, you know, the, you, you just you, you replace the the uh, the NKVD with the Russian military and you have you know, bo both things seem, you know, remarkably similar, especially with in, in the report, by the way, we, we, we also note that uh, I believe the OSCE has uh, in one of their independent reports noted that there are, uh, you know, pretty, pretty wide reports of Russia targeting um, and uh, 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 punishing like specific Ukrainian uh, cultural uh, uh, and, um, I guess like journalistic figures in, in occupied areas. So yeah, it's, it, 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 it really, it really serves to, or it should serve to reshape, uh, Western perceptions of the Ukrainian and Russian relationship. Uh, and I hope it does. And I hope that our report helps, uh, people better understand that. Um, and I do think that it's important to note at this moment that, um, you know, this report is still very young. It's only, you know, we only published it, uh, you know, uh, like three weeks ago. So um, it's still being reviewed and read. And um, I'm having conversations with people who say that they just got it last week, or that they've heard of some um, influential person who just like got finished reading it and found it super impressive. So I do think that reports like this 
and that conversations like this can help uh, readjust and reframe the conversation around Ukraine. Um, actually, going back to the episode that I listened to about uh, uh, Russian imperialism, I think you made you made a really interesting point that uh, that it's hard to understand uh, the history of the Russian people without the Ukrainian people. Uh, but just it's it's absolutely interesting to understand that statement in the context that it's actually entirely possible to understand the history of the Ukrainian people without the Russian people. And Westerners just do not understand that right now. And I hope that uh, we will start to understand it. I think it's a brilliant idea to write an article about uh, the new Renaissance being executed. And uh, I want to share one uh, one episode uh, recently in my life when we came to Kharkiv, I think it was in 2018. And uh, we visited also these places related to executed Renaissance, like the building Slovo. And one of my friends has told me, I was I was really impressed that, look, this renaissance in the 1920s was just a, an instrument for all these brilliant people to show up so that NKVD knew whom to kill, you know, and that that can repeat again. And this was like a black joke, but uh, it is really repeating now. And I and I I agree with you. I, I, I have to I have to say, um, while I was doing the research for the report, um, I I read um there's a there's a play by i'm trying to remember the 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 um uh i think it's mikola kulish wrote a play called mina Mizailo, and that's one of that's one of the lines like that's the origin of i think that's the origin of that joke uh that's one of the lines in the play is there's a there's a ukrainian called uncle taras and uh he criticizes soviet ukrainization policies and says uh, that uh, I just I just found the quote, uh, and he says their Ukrainization uh, is just a means to uncover all of us Ukrainians and then destroy us together, uh, so that no spirit remains. I'm warning you. And then you know, several years later, uh, Kulish himself is is uh, murdered by the Soviet uh, authorities. So yeah, yeah, it's it's it's. It's absolutely terrifying to think about it in in those terms and to understand that, you know, these uh, narratives have persisted for a century, effectively. So, you know, it is it, it, it it's chilling to think about. Yes, unfortunately. Maybe my last question is, uh, um, I have the impression that the discussion of the genocide was kind of always framed uh, by the reference to the Holocaust. And of course, we understand that the Holocaust is, is a horrible crime. But it seems that at some point that uh, our understanding of atrocities was uh, framed in the way that, look, there is the crime of the crimes and nothing can be compared to it and uh, it's not about that we compare Holodomor with Holocaust I don't think that this is a fruitful idea or comparing Putinism with Nazism I think the, the fruitful idea was, would be to say that we have a diversity of uh, forms of evil and uh, if at some point at some by some criteria one evil does not compare to another evil 
it doesn't make it less evil, let's say. Uh, the genocide of Russians against Ukrainians didn't mean that the Russians were going to kill all Ukrainians physically, as Nazis were killing all, well, trying to kill all Jews physically. But it did mean that they will they will kill enough number of Ukrainians so that the very idea of Ukraine disappears. And I think this is this is the return uh, what we are witnessing right now. This is the return of this old old story. And therefore, one of the problems of the 20th century, in my view, is that the genocide of the Nazis was condemned and uh, depassed, and the genocide of the Stalinists was not condemned in this way and therefore it is now repeating what do you think that 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 is so similar to how i have framed um the that's that's honestly that is how that is similar to how i framed the 2014 invasion to a lot of uh family friends and colleagues uh back in texas Uh, i visited for a couple of months in uh, 2015, and they were asking me all about it. And that, that's basically how I explained it to them, that there are these atrocities that go back throughout time and sort of we've never, you know, there, there's never been, uh, uh, no, nobody has ever been able to compel Russians to actually, uh, you know, re-examine what actually happened and actually atone for their, uh, uh, you know, the sins of their forefathers. Um, I do think, like, the, what you bring up, actually, uh, it there's one thing I, I do want to bring up in, spe- like, in particular, like a specific incident in terms of Russia not actually coming to terms with its own past. Is so I think in uh, at some point when. Um, uh, it's. I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was right before, uh, or no, it was right after the Smolensk plane crash that killed the Polish president. Uh, the Russian parliament came out with a statement that formally recognized um, the Katyn massacre as uh, an intentional atrocity by the Soviet Union against Poles. But if you look up the actual statement and you analyze it, which I did, um, you start to see that the uh, the statement is just an attempt to completely uh, like to completely say that well no actually Stalin was just bad and actually uh, we should all be trying to recover from his crimes against all of us. They specifically cite. Uh, uh, Soviet crimes against Russian citizens. Um, and then at the end of the statement, it says that Poland and Russia should be working together to celebrate the memories of both the uh, uh, of both the victims of the Katyn massacre and the uh, uh, heroes of the Red Army. Well, the heroes of the Red Army were, were, were some of the perpetrators of the Katyn massacre. So how how is that an acknowledgement of what happened? Um, so yeah, I think it really requires people to uh, reflect on their own histories and on uh, the their own problems, right? Uh, another big thing that is just coming to mind is there's a there's an insistence by Russia, uh, by the Kremlin, that Ukraine should first come to terms 
with every bad thing that has ever happened uh, 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 at the hands of a Ukrainian uh, before they can move on with their own history. And I find that absolutely absurd because sort of as you point to, right, like even with the Holodomor, Ukrainians have only just begun to reconcile uh, with their own, you know, their own place in that genocide. Um, it, it's, it's ta- it takes years to come to terms with what happened to your people, especially when it wasn't a topic people were allowed to discuss for decades after it happened. So, you know, I think that it's just, it's, it's, it, it really is, uh, or it seems to me to be the case that, uh, you know, these atrocities happen, uh, the, the perpetrators get away with those atrocities and then just buy, buy their time until they can attempt it again. And one last point on, uh, uh, your question is, uh, a big thing that we stress in the report uh, is exactly what you said. Genocide is an attempt to uh, like to destroy a group in whole or in part. Clearly, what Russia is attempting to do in Ukraine is to destroy the Ukrainian people in part. And there's an intent there. There's a specific kind of Ukrainian they're trying to destroy. There is a kind of Ukrainian who, you know, maybe doesn't have as intimate a relationship with their own identity or as strong feelings about their own identity, that kind of Ukrainian the Kremlin is fine with. It's the Ukrainian that uh, the Ukrainian person who insists that their identity is unique. It doesn't matter if they're Russian speaking. It doesn't matter if they're Ukrainian speaking. It doesn't matter if they're French speaking or English speaking. Um, if a Ukrainian believes that he or she is distinct from ethnic Russians, then they must be punished. And that is a large part of the Ukrainian people. To, to, to carry out a genocide in part or to attempt a genocide in part, you only need to target a significant portion of uh, the targeted group. Um, and I think that we both know that the, uh, especially after the initial wave of the invasion, that the, uh, the uh, uh, portion of the Ukrainian people who find themselves to be completely uh, uh, completely distinct uh, or ho- mostly distinct from Russians is a very large uh, uh, part of Ukrainian society. So um, I, I shiver to think what 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 will happen if uh, uh, Western countries don't really uh, dig down and reflect on their duty to prevent the atrocities that we're seeing in Ukraine. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you for for this analysis and, and for your words. It is important that these words are pronounced by not by not only by Ukrainians. We had Christopher uh, Atwood, who is one of the contributors to a, a very fresh report called "An Independent Legal Analysis of the Russian Federation's Breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the Duty to Prevent." This report has been prepared by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy and Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to talk to you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor at UkraineWorld.org. 
Let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Subscribe to Ukraine World on social networks, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and YouTube. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.